everybody. Welcome to the Gone Cheap and Podcast. My name is Chris Collard. I'm your host for the day, along with a couple of other of our Gone Cheap and team, Mike Harrington and Rick Payway, the guru of Jeeps of all time. Uh, today, we've got a really special show. Uh, we are talking about a trail that's near and dear to my heart, um, the Rubicon, uh, kind of one of my backyard trails grew up uh learning how to wheel there learning about technical driving uh and it's very much known around the world and we've got some awesome guests with us today that are going to share their perspective from their different corners of the off-road world so our first guest is ken Hauer, and he is the president of the rubicon trail foundation and we've got uh bob sweeney and bob is the president of Jeeper Chambery. Got a lot of presidents here. Next president is uh, Pierce Umlauf, and a good friend of mine. He is the president of Jeep Chambery USA and Mark A. Smith Off-Road. And rounding up that crew is Roger Salazar, another good friend of mine. Roger is the a commissioner on the California Off-Highway Vehicle Motorized Recreation. Help me out with that, Roger. Off-Highway Motor Vehicle Recreation Commission. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Off-Highway Motor, Motor Vehicle Recreation Division. Great. So I'd like to know, I think we'd want to share just a little bit um, about your background. So we're going to start with Ken. Um, tell us what's up, Ken. Yeah, so I've uh, been a trail user since uh, 1979. That was the first time I went through the Rubicon. And I was just a regular old trail user for many, many years and then just got involved with Friends of the Rubicon. I ran Rubicon Trail Patrol uh, when that first uh, started after um, after um, Rich Klein handed over the keys to the car to me. And I ran that for a while and then uh, joined the Rubicon Trail Foundation board in 2011 and became president in July of 2021. Fantastic. All right. Well, welcome. Glad you're here. I'm really looking forward. I think we're all looking forward to everything that's going on from the Herbcon Trail Foundation side. Um, next around my clock here is Pierce. You got your, you're muted there, buddy. Oh, I know. I like to keep it quiet. I don't want to hear all the music in the car here. So uh, I've been, you know, I met Mark Smith um, back in 1996 at a Camp Jeep event in Camp Hill, Colorado. And uh and, uh, you know, Mark was the founder of Jeepers Jamboree and, and Jeep Jamboree USA. Bob and I have a lot in common and uh, share a lot of space together on the Rubicon. And, you know, Mark was, uh, you know, started the first trip on the Rubicon in 1953. And so there's a lot of history there with the organization and with partnerships that Mark put together, like Rubicon Soda Springs Incorporated and Rubicon Trail Partnership, um, which, you know, are really intricate in, in keeping the Rubicon opens where a lot of users go to overnight at those locations. And um, through the organizations that we have, you know, we, we guide, uh, you know, a couple hundred rigs through there every year with guided trips in the Rubicon. But, you know, the history of the organization goes back uh, to Mark being out there in 1952 when he went out there in a pickup truck and he was fishing on the Rubicon River and he wanted to really make this a special place. And he did that really by, uh, you know, creating these private landowner groups that secured private land on the trail to keep the public land open. So, you know, we're, we're here from a standpoint of really ensuring that the 
Rubicon stays open, obviously. And I know this discussion is going to bring a lot, you know, about the closure that was recently there. But, you know, Mark was an advocate uh, about keeping that trail open and uh, a lot of fun and interesting stories about Mark trying to keep that trail open over the years. And, and I think that we're all probably on the same page and wanting to make sure this trail stays open for the long term and future generations. Yeah. Excellent. Thanks, Pierce. And uh, welcome. Glad you're here as well. Roger Salazar. Yeah. Tell uh, us about you. what you do, Roger. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just wanted to give a little bit of my background on, on the on the trail. I, you know, I've been coming out to the Rubicon Trail uh, since the 80s. Uh, uh, my, da- my dad was an avid jeeper. Uh, we rode around in his uh, CJ5. Um, and uh, I still have his uh, dash plaque from 1988 Jeepers Jamboree uh, in my possession. It's a little faded, but it still it still works. Um, and uh, you know, I've I've been uh, you know again a, a, an an avid user of the trail. I've, I've been on uh, a number of the of jamborees. Uh, you know, uh, Jeepers Jamboree with uh, uh, with Bob's groups and uh, Jeep Jamboree USA on a number of those with uh, with Pierce's group. Uh, and uh, I've always enjoyed uh, you know the 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 activity that goes along with you know, those big adventures. Uh, and I, then I, I love going out there on my own with, uh, you know, with, with some friends. Uh, I've been out to RTF property with, uh, with Ken and his, uh, his group of folks, uh, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, my, my duties, uh, you know, as a commissioner, you know, are, are, are responsible for all the OHV parks uh, in and around California that, uh, that state parks runs. Uh, but we also provide a number of grants, uh, and uh, um, you know the the uh, the division provides grants to to the Rubicon Trail through El Dorado County, through the Forest Service, through uh, um, different groups like RTF and uh, and others. Um, you know, so uh, I'm very very interested in in what's going on. Uh, as 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 you mentioned, Chris, this is our backyard trail. I'm also president of the Sierra Treasure Hunters Four Wheel Drive Club, uh, and uh, and our club is. Uh, uh, is one of the adopted trail uh, um, uh, sponsors for uh, the Walker Hill segment of of the Rubicon Trail. So we go out and we monitor uh, that segment. We report back to uh, to El Dorado County and and uh, th- those folks with uh, pictures of of uh, of what we see for the uh, BMP's uh, best management practice uh, uh, items that are out there. Um, so you know we we take a strong interest in the trail, making sure that uh, we want to keep it open. And like uh, Pierce and Ken and others have said. You know, uh, my 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 goal um, as with anything I do is is to keep the trail open forever. Uh, you know, that's that's the that's the the number one overarching goal is uh, open access in perpetuity. Yeah, fantastic. So, um, little uh, known secret for our listeners is that uh, it was easy to contact Roger because we're in the same four wheel drive club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I might be one of the people that. Uh, help talk him into being the president he raised his hand with a good idea one day and we're like hey <laughs> how about that guy let, let him do the work no I'm just kidding <laughs> you're elected right right all right cool well awesome thanks for uh taking time to join us i know you're you're busy all the time roger mm-hmm. um so all right gonna circle around the clock here to bob swinney you hear me stuck out here on uh the KOH on the lake bed. So hopefully it's working here. Uh, Bob Sweeney with Jeepers Jamboree. Uh, we've been putting on Jeep trips now for 70 years on the Rubicon. It's our backyard. Very much love it. Want to keep it open here. So I believe that's like everybody else talking. We're here to talk about the latest issues. And, you know, we need to keep our trail open. People need to use it. Come in our yard. and enjoy it all it's uh i'm glad to see everybody getting together here 
and chatting about it. Um, I have a lot of family history on it, as some folks know. My great-great-grandfather signed a declaration in uh, 1887, so it, it's, it means a lot to me, besides being with Jeepers Jamboree. So look forward to our discussions. Yeah, fantastic, Bob. Super glad you're here. And uh, I'm going to take a little segue here because everybody's coming to the meeting here from diff different parts of the world or different parts of the country. And Bob uh, is on the middle of the uh, Mean Stry Lake bed. It looks like in a motorhome or something, trying to get a quiet place because he's the king, or so the king of the hammers this week, <laughs> which is awesome. Ken's background, for those that are just listening, it looks like a picture of Spider Lake behind you. That right? Yeah. And then, uh, and Pierce, Pierce has his background blurred, but that's all right, because we can see he is sitting in a Jeep uh, <laughs> Wrangler somewhere, because I can see the top and like, I don't know if you got a freedom top on that or not, but yeah, he's got it blurred a little bit, but that's a Jeep background. And then Roger looks like you're in your home office. I see a Rubicon Trail Foundation plaque uh, behind you. Oh, that's, that's a that's a slice of uh, uh, you know of the the uh, uh, the tree on Old Sluice. I mean, on Big Sluice. Sorry, that uh, was cut up. Uh, Ken can tell you a little bit more about it. But uh, mm. uh, that's uh, I got that at one of the RTF uh, raffles last year. Fantastic. And I have one of the little wall hanging bottle openers. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, those that's those are our guests. Now I want to take a, a quick moment and introduce um, our staff guys. I guess we're staff. We don't get paid, but yeah, we could be called staff. Uh, Mike, Mike Carrington, tell the world about Mike Carrington and all your amazing video work. Uh, starts in the Marine Corps in 1973, and then I'll fast forward real quick. But uh, got lucky and traded my rifle for a camera. And started shooting uh, videos for the Marine Corps. One of my first videos was uh, off-road safety video. A couple jarheads hit the desert. Of course, there wasn't any signage to tell them not to, and they tore across the desert and unfortunately uh, nose first into a mine shaft and, and died. So we need, need to start training the guys on how to how to wheel across the desert and be safe. And that was my first off-road safety video. And then. Uh, Fast forward 1995, I owned a facilities in Santa Monica, California, and I got a call from uh, a gentleman that was the art director at Four Wheeler Magazine, and a friend of his was editing his, all this automotive stuff at my facility. So I started with uh, Four Wheeler Magazine 95, did several of the top trucks and Ultimate Adventures, Diesel Power Challenge, and a couple of real truck club challenges. And uh, by 2018, I've sort of semi-retired and found out about uh, Ganjeepan, and uh, that became my way to get my fix on uh, wheeling and shooting off-road videos. So here we are today, 47 years after I shot my first off-road safety video. Yeah, awesome. Well, we're glad you're here, Mike, because Mike's the guy that I call when I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling on some kind of video editing question. I'm like, Mike, help me out. And then we have Rick Payway. Last but not least. Hey, guys. Boy, where would I start? I could start with my uh, Jeep behind me in this photo. That's, that's when I was 15. It was about 1973, just like Mike. <clears throat> Excuse me. This is after I rebuilt it the first time I drove it off a cliff and bent the frame. So that's why it's also in uh, forest green, which is a marine color in World War II. Anyway, I still have the same, same Jeep. It's treated me well over the years. Uh, I had my own Jeep shop in Arizona. 
driven Jeeps long distances all over the world, short distances, Rubicon. Started going on the Rubicon in 80, somewhere around 88, and started working with the magazines about that time. And then in 95, joined Four Wheel and Off Road Magazine. That's about when we met up with uh, Mr. Harrington there. And been doing videos ever since with Ultimate Adventure and uh, Dirt Every Day. And of course, JP Dirt and Drive. So yeah, I go I go a little bit back into all of the uh, cheap stuff. In fact, I remember doing the 2002 TJ. That was the basis of the Jeep Rubicon. That was a TJ we built up named Elvis. So you want to know more about Elvis and how it evolved into the Rubicon? We'll have a we'll have an episode on that. That would be a great idea. Yeah. Little lunatic French kind of episode. <laughs> yeah. Got the shirt right. somewhere. All right. Well, thanks, Rick. And and I'm Chris Collard. I'm just a guy with no talent that happened to be able to have the account for the Zoom call. <laughs> and <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> now I've had uh, been playing off-road um yeah, since I was a kid in the desert, Mojave Desert, you know, with my dad, who was an old dirt dog, Barstow to Vegas racer and that type of thing, and transitioned into off-road, four-wheel drive stuff. And uh, I was a magazine editor for a while, commercial photographer, um, and just a general, as Ned Bacon likes to say it, I'm a bum looking for my next free meal. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things I was really infatuated or interested in, because I've written about the Rubicon so many times, is the history of the area. Uh, you know, the, the current history, you know, going back to Jamboree, what happened, you know, before uh mark and his crew started going up there in the early 50s it's like there the rubicon's got some intense history to it and if any guys want to like speak to that yeah chris i think that you know talking to the county i think that the original map and ken or bob you can correct me if i'm wrong but the original map of the trail goes back to i think 1887 is the first uh piece of, of artwork on that and then i think it's 1897 it was documented in county minutes as a route. Now, back then, it was all county. The, the whole piece was El Dorado County back then. And what's important about those dates is that this was before the inception of the U.S. Forest Service. And so over the time, you know, as pieces of property got traded, as they traded hands in terms of ownership, the, the route was established well before the Forest Service was there. And, and it's been documented again back into the 1800s, which is important because that really shows its designation as a route, as a public right of way. And like you said, the history of this was there used to be stagecoaches that went through that trail. You know, we hear a lot of people, users on the trail, they say, well, you know, you're making it easier when you're doing this stuff. You go, wait a minute. This, if you want to go back to the historical roots for this, you'd take a stagecoach to this or an old Studebaker, which you, you've seen pictures in both. We have pictures of the old stagecoaches in Rubicon Springs, and you have little pictures of the old Studebakers in, in Little Sluice Box. So, you know, it became unmaintained many years later. And obviously, it's now the roughness and the ruggedness that we see today. But the documentation of this goes back well before um, – uh, a lot of the inception of the Forest Service and some of the issues that we've had on the trail with uh, with the uh, potential closures. Yeah, actually, I have Pierce. That's a really good point. I have the um, article right here in front of me. This is from the paper back in 1887, I believe. August 3rd was the designation. And it actually says three chief uh, transmontane, which is not a very popular word anymore. Wagon roads traverse the quadrangle 
One, the so-called Hennessy Pass Road crosses the mountains along the northern. Second follows the railroad as far as Truckee. And the third, the most important one, extending along the southern boundary, connecting Georgetown, El Dorado County with McKinney at uh, Lake Tahoe. And that would be the Rubicon Trail. Wow. That is so significant. And if you think about this, guys, this was this was the Wild West still. I mean, the West was, they were still train robberies and stagecoach robberies and, you know, with planes, trains, and auto, well, trains were there, but automobiles and planes <laughs> weren't. Uh, you know, this was, this was truly the Wild West. And that was a really remote area to be traveling. Um, it, but my blows my mind that people would do this, you know, on a regular basis back then. And, you know, we, we have the benefit of 40 inch tires. They did not. <laughs> Unless you drive I think some of them CJ actually like had me. larger tires, except they were wooden with yes. <laughs> steel wooden around spokes. the outside. That's right. Yeah. Wooden wheels with a steel band on it. What kind of traction did you get from those, right? Pretty poor. But I think yeah. that's what's important, Chris. Like you had mentioned that long before it was even a trail back in the 1800s, Indians used it for whatever you want to call, call those indigenous people at this time. They were using it as a game trail. And then, of course, mountain men used the same type of trails all across the Sierras, not just the Rubicon. So all of those roads uh, were important. And we're fortunate enough that this one was maintained for a while, at least, to make its mark. And people bought property along the way because they wanted to be there. And it was a, it was a regular train route, as obvious when you have stagecoaches. And eventually Sudebakers and eventually Jeeps, people still want to go from one side in the Sierras to the other. And that's another point is that a lot of a lot of forget that this is a traversing route over the Sierra Nevada mountains. When you start on one side, you go over to the other side, just like you know, Interstate 80 today or Highway 50. Exactly. And that's where a lot of people don't understand. The Rubicon actually isn't the name of a Jeep. That's not where it came from. The Rubicon Jeep was named after the trail, which is named after a river in Italy. But regardless, it's called the Rubicon. And most people think it's just a Jeep, whereas in truth, it is one of the, what, what did you say, Bob, the granddaddy of all Jeep, Jeep trails? Where rock crawling was sort of... I've heard that, heard that once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, Rubicon so in Italy Col- didn't... Didn't Caesar lead his troops across the Rubicon? Is that right? Yeah, the whole, yeah. The whole deal there was essentially that uh, uh, you know once uh, you know once Caesar was trying to Julius Caesar was trying to take uh, um, you know power in in uh, in Rome, uh, you know they had warned him that uh, uh, you know if uh, if he had crossed this this river, the Rubicon River, then uh, there was no going back. Uh, right. You know, to the way it was before, and and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and we kind of feel that way as users on the trail a lot of times as well. Is 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 you know once you get past gate, Gatekeeper and Rubicon, you're you're committed, right? You're <laughs> you're going to be going, uh, and so you know it. it uh, um, uh, you know it kind of adds to the, the adventure part of it. Yeah, absolutely. It's no going back. That's uh, what I love. Go ahead, Crick. I would say my question is: When did it fall into disrepair? And people no longer went across it regularly. We know March Smith started up in the early 50s, but prior to that, it languished for how many years? Well, from my readings, um, so the Huttucker brothers were the first uh, people to come in and kind of settle the valley, Rubicon Springs, that is. 
and they were, uh, I think they were growing alfalfa um, and bottling mineral water. Uh, so mineral water was, spring water was like really popular back and they'd bottle it and take it by mule up to Lake Tahoe and the resorts, you know, the the resorts in Tahoe, not kind of resorts that we have today, mm-hmm. but um, they uh, eventually ended up selling out to a woman named, what was her name? Sierra Nevada Phillips Clark. Um, but Sierra. during that time and before that she bought that, uh, the Rubicon Springs, um, I believe that's the time that Bob, your like seventh great grandfather, was working on creating a trail because the Huntsucker brothers did lobby with Eldorado County for some assistance because it was becoming a lot, you know, fairly trafficked road. And I believe that that's when they were able to get Eldorado County to um, aim at a unmaintained county road. So Sierra bought the prop, bought the Rubicon Springs in 1886. And then in August 3rd of 1887 is when uh, Bob's um, great, I'm sure, great, three greats or two? Or four? How many? Well, he was great. Three great. Three greats. Three greats. Uh, was when the res- did the resolution to make it um, a county road at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And then so she operated. She was the one, I believe, that um, started the stage line. The, like a weekly stage line, I believe it was. The Rubicon Flyer was the stage um, into Lake Tahoe and back. And I, I don't remember if it went down to, to towards Wentworth or below. But um, yeah, I mean, pretty amazing and intrepid woman to be out there. Just like, I'm building a hotel. Uh, we're doing this. We're going to have guests in. It, I mean, they really put Rubicon Springs on the map as like a so-called destination resort for the late 1800s it was phenomenal. Um, but yeah, can, was, you could probably pick up some of the history after. Uh, I have it. I have it on our website right here. So I'm cheating. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1889 is when she finished the two and a half story hotel. It had 16 rooms and a parlor with a hor- original horsehair furniture, of course, and a foot pedal organ, it says. Um, she had white linens and polished silverware and th- served three meals a day. And uh, the original cost was uh, $2.50 a night. It's the original. Wow. Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Could have been something to be down there something. when that was still standing. Something um, else. But from what I understand is that it changed hands a couple times, ended up in the hands of uh, timber co- lumber companies um, that had it uh, various lumber companies that had it through i believe michigan cal the peaks actually owned it for a while and i i thought pierce or bob that they were the ones that um sold it when the rubicon springs uh property owners association was started i think it was bohemian lumber company at the time i think that owned it yeah and then right, Mark ended up putting the group together to buy yeah yeah and and so bringing us into um, what year was that, Pierce or Bob? Yeah, you know I don't know I don't know the inception of RSSI, Pennsylvania Springs Incorporated. It was actually a partnership to begin with and turned to a corporation many years later. But it's been at least I, I would I mean I would think Bob what forty years at least I think being in there that that they that they pulled that together. So I know that the story of Mark was that you know the Forest Service was interested in buying that piece of land and Mark went kind of got it out from underneath him. And that was really, Mark was a realtor in the area. And he knew that you know, at the time there was a lot of controversy over the forest service trying to shut the trail down. And Mark 
knew that if he bought private land in the Rubicon, that they couldn't close him out of his private land. And it was really, a you know, if you think of the moves that were made back then, the foresight about that, uh, you know, all the private property that is on the Rubicon are, are now kind of controlled by users and enthusiasts, uh, which is great because it's it's really what ensures that that trail survivability um, is that they can't close us out of, out of our land. And that's that's really important. So, um, you know, it's amazing the forethought of that that has kept this trail open. I think if we're on Forest Service property today, the trail would be shut down. And so um, it was a lot of, you know, the, the people that have fought for this to keeping this trail open over the last, you know, 40 to 50 years, it's been always a constant uh, thorn aside for a lot of environmental organizations. And, uh, but, you know, you've watched the stewardship programs come to light on the trail. You watched the efforts by the county uh, have made huge strides. And that is why the trail is open today. So um, it's nice to see that we are still utilizing this today, you know, many, many years later. Yeah. Really, really, really cool. And for those that you don't, that, uh, that don't know, um, so these guys, Mark, and I'm trying to remember some of the other Pierce, uh, Richard Pierce and um, Prince and uh, Mainwaring, I believe, Bob, I think your dad was involved with it. But these guys put out a whole bunch of their own money without having any uh, false ideas that they were ever going to get a return on it. It was simply to buy the land, lock it up. And when I say lock it up, it means preserve it for people to use. Cause I remember it was in the eighties um, that I, that I don't remember the exact year, but it was in the eighties and that was happening. And then they, you know, we realized like, Oh, okay. Now you pay $10 to camp at Rubicon Springs. And I remember a couple of people kind of scoffing at that. And it was like $10 for a week, mind you. Right. Mm-hmm. And even yeah. then when I was somewhat younger than I am now, um, I was like, are you guys kidding me? It's like these guys just bought the property. It's 10 bucks. It's like this is like the least we can do to like, you know, they should charge more. But I, you know, for me as a user and not an owner, I've been uh, we've been blessed with the fact that you can go up there and camp in Rubicon Springs. Absolutely. One of the most beautiful areas in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, and to, to top your point on that, when I look at the operating budgets of Rubicon Soda Springs Incorporated, you know, Rubicon Springs, we call it. Um, well over, well over a million dollars of money has been put back into that property, uh, into the operation of that property for people to use. All of the original owners and the owners today of that of that land have not taken a dime out of that uh, as per personal interest. It's all gone back into either toilet facilities, septic systems, equipment to run that camp, sawmills to build the property in there. Every dime has gone back in that. And it's literally, it's it's well in the seven digits. They've gone back into that for users to have that property. And Rubicon Springs is really a safe haven for a lot of people. We have a caretaker in there from the springtime to the fall who has satellite phones, who has some medical equipment, who has the ability for communication. Um, and it's really changed. It's it's a lifeline for a lot of people. They get in there, have a broken part. And sometimes we have broken you know parts for people in camp or the ability to get communication out to somebody who may be able to assist those individuals. So, um, you know, it couldn't be done without the the private landowners up there as well. And the county is a big piece of that. So are the private landowners. I'd like to add on to that because the you mentioned the foresight of how important that was. That's actually why I am, why I do what I do, because it was, uh, I can believe it was around 1985 or 86, you know, with no internet, <laughs> no forums, no Facebook, none of that stuff. And I don't even know how, but we found out that the Rubicon Trail was sold to uh, someone we didn't know who we had no idea it was Mark Smith at the time, and 
you know, like anything else, there was pitchforks around the fire going, they're just going <laughs> to close this. There's going to close this. It's going to be somebody's private little playground. There's going to be a gate here, you know, because we didn't know. And um, when I look back on how I got to where I was, that that was that moment where I didn't know what was going on. And I just didn't want to be in a position where I didn't know what was going on again. So uh, the really the foresight for Mark to, to, to do that with all of those others back then is quite remarkable indeed. Yeah, that's fantastic. And honestly, it's like between not only folks like Mark and the group that purchased that land, um, you know, we came into an era um, that was much more management critical um, you know, 20, 25 years ago when things started changing kind of in the OHV world. Um, and I want to back up just a second because a lot of our folks have not been to Rubicon Springs or maybe haven't done a, a Jeep Jamboree run or the cheapest jamboree and i could just say from personal experience guy that's been around this area for about 40 years like you gotta do it it's like they I'm both missing out. on yeah <laughs> missing Roger's out. done it i know it's like we were up there together on on the jeepers jamboree this this last july and done lots of uh cheap jamboree usa runs around the country it's like they're great programs so Fantastic. don't be shy if you're looking for something fun to do in your in your jeep um or and uh, jeepers you don't you don't have to have a jeep so uh, the you foundation and yep, if you you, <laughs> you guys know the rule on gone jeep and if you say a non-jeep word you got to drink something i'm having coffee okay mm. slur uh Sound the rubicon the rubicon trail foundation all when anybody asks us we have a ton and ton of social media people that ask questions and we always tell them your best bet is to go on one of the organized trips, either on Pierce's trip or on Bob's trip. We always tell them yeah. to do that. They're going to have be guided. They're going to have people telling them where to go. That uh, besides, forget about the fun factor, but just the safe factor is they're going to get guides. They're going to have the ability to get parts and stuff. They'll have people taking care of them, mechanics, and all that stuff. It also helps them build their confidence. Uh, you know, I think that was a uh, you know uh, my wife, for example. Uh, did one of the the, the jamborees this past year uh, in my Jeep, um, uh, and I and she was she was shocked. She said, "You trust me with your Jeep?" And I said, "With the rock rollers and the and the guides that are out there, I have no I have no uh, uh, fear that uh, anything will go wrong." And she made it all the way through, and and uh, you know got built up her confidence so that now she's going to take her Jeep out uh, out there as well. And, and uh, you know the, again those types of programs, but again. Getting into the springs, uh, you know, uh, um, with, with, when you when you get there and the the, the facilities that are set up, uh, the the activities you can do. Uh, we love the swimming hole and the rope swing <laughs> out, out out there. Uh, in addition to uh, you know to to all the activities that and Pierce and Bob's group uh, set up. Uh, um, they really take care of of, of you know of the uh, participants that are out there, and and just everybody has a great time. Mm-hmm. Here, here. Well, maybe that's something that we should talk about, the, the difference between the two groups. We, because all of us have been associated with both groups for all this time, the people out in our podcast world do not know or may not understand the difference between Jeepers Jamboree and Jeep Jamboree USA. Uh, you guys want to speak to that a little bit? Maybe Bob, what are we? We're, we like a, we're, like a, we're like a divorced couple, aren't we? That still gets along. <laughs> yeah. Right, <laughs> we speak all the time, but yeah, that's true. Now, you know, I, I mean, to put it simply, you know, Mark 
you know, founded, you know, Jeepers Jamboree with a, a bunch of other Rotarians. And, and, and what Jeepers Jamboree is what you have today is, was really the founding, uh, you know, the, the, the founding member of that. And, and over the years, you know, Mark broke off and, and started Jeep Jamboree USA. And it's so confusing because we're in the same small town. You got Jeepers Jamboree <laughs> and Jeep Jamboree USA, and we're one digit off in the phone number. So, you know, it's nothing like to create a little confusion. Um, and, and Bob, you speak to your trips. I mean, we have, we have one trip a year on the Rubicon for, for the public and we do some corporate trips up there for Jeep and, and Bob really runs the, the masses through on his trips. He's got two up there and, and, uh, and so it's slightly different, but you know, we, we utilize the same campgrounds and obviously the same trail. Uh, sometimes we even have the same staff up there uh, helping out, but uh, two different organizations, but, uh, you know, obviously bringing people as, as Roger said, it's, it's really about, we take, we're the largest groups that take the most people in there under a guided service, ensuring their safety, uh, and, and ensuring we have their back. But, uh, yeah, yeah Bob's running organization has been around a lot longer than, than ours in terms of the groups and, and, uh, yeah, but we, you know, we, we, we share a lot of those uh, resources together up there. Yeah, and that's what's know. interesting that Roger says, going on those trips with the guides, with the rock rollers, you do build your confidence. I've seen it time and time again when I'm on this trip along with the, either media group or on the regular Jeepers Jamboree. And it's amazing how new enthusiasts can learn and be safe and have a great time. It's not all about hardcore upside down on fire whatsoever. <laughs> no, it's and even, not, and, you know, it's sorry, go ahead, true. Ken. I was going to say, even if you have confidence, if you want to see a stripper pole in the middle of the Rubicon Springs, Bob's your guy. <laughs> hey, Bob, I, I, for everybody, Bob's been having some issues with his audio, but I want to want to try to jump in there, Bob, if you can. Um, obviously, we know you're in the middle of uh, Hammer Town, the king of the hammers right now, but let's give it a yeah. shot. It's, it's, it's hard for me to speak because of the service here, but I agree, you know, Pierce said, the Rubicon has a destination, and that's Rubicon Springs. I, I wheel all over the place, and there's trails all over, but there's nothing more beautiful than our backyard, the Rubicon. And the nice thing about it is look at what RSSI has down there for us to go and sit around the river, enjoy it. It's for folks that haven't been there, I really recommend them to hook up with Jeepers Jamboree or with Jeep Jamboree USA because our companies do know how to show you a very good time in the room. That's Absolutely. what I've heard. You know how to show us a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see you laughing over there, Pierce. <laughs> so moving on ahead, um, it, you know, there were some stuff, uh, some things going on in the, late in the 90s late 90s 2000 on the rubicon trail that uh yeah we're just like really rough really rough um i know most of you guys remember that stuff but it was uh my club we would go up uh rick you guys used to do the flat fenders uh fourth of july run every year sell t-shirts and all yep. that yeah plastic flat fenders we'd go up and watch everybody go through the little sleuth sluice at the time and it got from a nice fun time to an almost dangerous time as we watched through the years. And, and I'm not was, talking about just vehicles rolling over either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was craziness. Um, 
you know, I we uh, I, I was getting in more more politically back then and uh, got involved a little bit with the OHV Commission and Daphne Green. Um, and there was there was just an outcry because we would always go up, obviously, on Fourth of July. We just stopped going because the area around Spider Lake, um, it was like a, a like a crankster acid infused mosh pit of craziness. Uh, I mean, people pouring gas on those thousand year old trees and just lighting them on fire, take chainsaws and cutting them down and driving over each other's cars. So it was really out of control. And the, the normal people uh, looked around and like, well, we are going to lose this place. I mean, this is this is bad. Um, we did some stuff with Jim Bramham. We started leading in uh, trips for media and for the OHU commission. And uh, around that time, uh, my clubs here, treasure hunters, you know, we got we basically were asked if we would bring in law enforcement just so they could look and see what was going on. So we came in in our personal vehicles and we brought some El Dorado County law enforcement officers or LEOs um, and, you know, camped up above Spider Lake and they got to observe the chaos um, and things were changing a lot. Um, you know, and I want to throw that out there because I know all of us were around in that era, but give me some feedback. A lot of things started happening politically. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I can anybody else who's free to jump in as well. I can just tell you as somebody who, like I said, 79 was my first time through the Rubicon. Uh, when you would get to Little Sluice, uh, you know, there'd be seven, eight, nine people there standing on the rock watching you go through Little Sluice and you would, you know, go through Little Sluice and you would complete it and you would go on your way. And it was a destination. It, the Rubicon was not the destination or Little Sluice was not the destination. The destination was to get to Rubicon Springs, usually camp overnight and then continue on into Tahoe whenever you are ready to end your trip. But as we got into the 90s, the late 90s, um, Little Sluice um, changed with some larger rocks were in there. I'm not even going to get into how they got there or what they were, but they were there. and. Suddenly, those crowds in an area that cannot sustain 300, 400, 500 people there watching rigs go through the little sluice box created an environmental, almost a catastrophe. Because as we know, the people here in this call know, 2004, the area was briefly condemned. And Pierce is a landowner of that area. And none of those landowners were allowed to go to their property because it was all closed due to human feces that was there. And Bob's Bob on this call, his dad, Jack, was a board of supervisor, and he was out there personally with the troops. And I mean troops, I mean volunteers out there scooping up and cleaning up all the human feces was there. And uh, the number that I heard thrown around that was taken out on that in 2004, which is really that the beginning of that time frame was 700 pounds that's uh and it, it just was not a sustainable thing to keep uh to to have it go in that fashion and i think everybody there was realizing that it, it things needed to change and in 2001 obviously friends of the rubicon was founded in in 2001 mm -hmm. from the lahant water board on the tahoe side but a lot of that activism and people caring about the Rubicon Trail began in the early 2000s um, because of what had happened in the 90s. 
you know, it was quite alarming. I mean, for all of us that just kind of grew up out, you know, it was our backyard. And all of a sudden we had this whole other group of people in there that were trashing on our backyard. It was a big deal. And they really were trash. Like you say, you know, the the little sluice was a perfectly navigable, hard trail, but you could do it. Uh, when certain individuals changed that trail with the addition or pulled down the rocks, then it became near impossible for a regular trip to go through and they had to bypass around the left side. Also at that time, like you said, because of the water quality, um, Spider Lake was effectively closed to camping. And mm -hmm. that was quite quite a shock because obviously anybody that has been there knows it's the most incredible place. But the proliferation of the white flowers, as they call them, mm -hmm. it was it was amazing. And I can see why some of that action was taken. And and the property owners at the time uh, in in the Spider Lake um, area, they they had pretty much left it for people to police themselves and they did a very poor job and they rightly so uh blocked access i mean imagine if somebody that you didn't know was taking poops on your front lawn and the county came along and said your house is condemned because of what's in the front yard and you're like that's not my stuff in the front yard that's somebody else's you would be a little upset too if you couldn't get in your front door because of other people and and that's exactly the situation that happened in the early 2000s at the Little Sluice and the and the Spider Lake area, and um, nobody nobody should blame anyone except themselves for how how that changed. So, as I came along, obviously the Rubicon Trail Foundation was formed. Tell tell us, especially since you're there, tell us how how that came about and why and what goes forward. Sure. So uh, in 2000, 2001, the Lahontan Water Board uh, raised some concerns about water quality on the Tahoe side. And the, uh, I won't get into the details, but a shovel brigade, which if you look at the Friends of the Rubicon logo, the logo is a shovel. Uh, there were some, roughly 200 shovels that were passed out to various people that day. And those have been given out as prizes and raffle items still to this day. Rusty Felina. Um, Still has a, has a few, if I'm not mistaken. But um, so the Friends of the Rubicon, FOTR, was created in 2001 to be the volunteer group. And it didn't matter who you were. You could be Bob from Jeepers Jamboree. You could be Pierce from Jeep Jamboree USA. You could be nobody, not in a club or anybody. And you were a member of Friends of the Rubicon if you cared about the Rubicon and you wanted to help out. That was the only requirement to be considered, I am a friend of the Rubicon. And it didn't have any organization. It didn't, it, it had one trail boss who was elected <laughs> by, by uh, and, and their job was simply to figure out what jobs needed, what things needed to be done on the Rubicon. And then the, the volunteers would spring to action and take care of that. But obviously, as you start doing maintenance, you need things like shovels and cement mixers and whatever it is that you might need to do that. And that takes money. And so Del Albright, who created the Friends of the Rubicon, also created the Rubicon Trail Foundation as the 501c3 nonprofit that would be able to collect those funds in order to do that maintenance on the trail for Friends of the Rubicon. And of course, now we're 19 years, 19 years later, we're still here. And now we own actual part of the trail, just like um, Pierce's group and um, the um, RSSI folks. Um, 
pierces both. So, and then there's one other property on Wentworth Springs that's owned by a family. But the, so there's four stakeholders that actually own the trail. And that, um, as Pierce had mentioned earlier, is extremely important. So that's kind of how uh, Rubicon Trail Foundation got started was that was the origins. And you mentioned, Ken, you mentioned, you know, funding and obviously mm-hmm. None of this stuff happens for free, except for the yep. tens of thousands of hours of volunteer labor. Um, but the OHE Commission, um, at least from you know my experience working with them around the early 2000s and onward, mm-hmm. uh, the the um, the commission was really involved with some of the assistance on the funding side. And the, and there's a reason for that is because the Rubicon Trail is no not a county road; it is a public road. And because it is a public road and it's not in the inventory of the of El Dorado County, they can't use any of their road funds on the Rubicon Trail at all. They're legally not allowed to. And that's where the OHV Commission comes in huge because uh, when we do, heli- not we, when I say the community does helicopter and the county usually facilitates that, helicopter drops for rocks or whatever is being done that requires large sums of money. Uh, the OHV Commission is that funding source, and RTF has um, matched well over a hundred thousand dollars. I don't even I don't even know the number. I couldn't even tell you, but it's um, um, definitely has um, uh, a, at least one comma. I don't know if it has. It does. It doesn't have two, but it's a lot of money that we've given as matching funds because typically there's grant money. And then there's a matching fund that must go along with it in order for the project to continue. And, and we fund those. We have um, never voted uh, to not fund. And that's why we raise money, because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what uh, what money n- might be required. And so that's why we fundraise, even though we might not have something today, we don't know what's going to be in the future. So um, th- those matching funds and the OHV Commission is super important to the health of the Rubicon. And the the thing the other thing I noticed in looking through uh, the number of the records, and again, uh, you know, these folks on this call have a lot more experience uh, than 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 I do on it. But the the OHV Commission, the grants are sort of a uh, you know they're they're uh, in a variety of different sort of pots. Uh, you know, they, there's they they provide uh, there's there's OHMBR grants for LEOs. Uh, for law enforcement, uh, you know uh, that that they provided on the on the trail for maintenance for for projects, uh, you know for uh, upkeep uh, and and construction uh, as well. Uh, you know the you'll notice as you sort of go into the Rubicon Trail and you use one of the uh, you know the 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 the, uh, um, the bathrooms, the port potties that are out there. The you know the the if you you know you close the door and it says you know your OHV dollars at work. Um, you know so there's there's uh, there's all sorts of every year you know from January through March we we go through a grant making process at the OHMBR where people can uh, and apply whether it's. Uh, uh, you know, uh, LEOs, whether it's the governments, the El Dorado County has applied for grants, the Forest Service has applied for grants, uh, whether, you know, RTF has applied for grants. Uh, there, there have been other, all sorts of groups, even even clubs have applied for grants for, for, for specific projects that they want to engage in out on the trail and all that helps. Uh, you know, I um, was uh, um, was on the East Coast during most of the 90s, so I missed some of this uh, this really bad stuff that that happened. And I'm just grateful for everybody who's on here, Bob, uh, Pierce, uh, uh, Ken, uh, you know, and all the others who, uh, you know, who really sort of took took a. a Took up arms and and uh, and stepped up and, and and cleaned it up because when I came back, uh, you know things had improved dramatically since uh, uh, since all those those problems that they had uh, uh, in the nineties. So let me ask you this: um, This is for Roger. 
So we talk about grant funding and we talk about money. So where does that money come from? Well, it's a, you know again, there's uh, there's all sorts of uh, again. I don't want to get into the state budgeting process because right. I'm nuts, uh, right. you know. But uh, uh, but there's you know, there's money that comes from the from the from the general fund. There's money that comes from uh, you know specific state uh, parks uh, budget allocations. But a lot of it comes from users, you know, uh, whether it's the uh, you know the the, uh, the the fees that get paid into the to, into the parks, uh, yeah, um, red sticker or the uh, the sticker programs, uh, and some of the other projects that are out there. So it comes from a variety of different places. Uh, um, you know, and uh, uh, and and you know the the great thing about uh, at least in, in my year, couple of years on the OHB commission, um, I love the fact that the users keep us honest. <laughs> uh, they will come to the meetings and they will if they don't see it being used the right way, uh, you know they'll they'll let you know about it. Um, you know uh, you see it specifically, uh, for example, in Oceano Dunes, the park down in in in, in Southern California. Uh, you know. Oh, you don't, they don't like the way the, the money's being used. They're going to tell you, uh, and which I appreciate that. And luckily, uh, we have we've had not had very many complaints on the on the, the funds that have been used for the uh, um, for the Rubicon, uh, and and it just tells me that the folks, uh, you know, that uh, that are getting the grants are doing a good job of of using those those resources the right way. So, from what I understand, um, and this I understand how the that program got started fifty years, fifty one years ago now. Um, was that uh, they realized that they've got a lot of people going going off the pavement, you know, and uh, we pay fuel taxes to help with the maintenance of roads. And they realized, like, we've got tens of thousands or however many gallons of gas that are just being used for OHV use. We should give a small portion of that, a quarter of a penny or whatever it was, to this to fund this program to help maintain those trails and the, the OHV uh, community. Yeah, that's how it started. Uh, there's a little bit more to it than that these days, but yes, absolutely. Yeah. And my dad had the little book. You had a book and you would log all the gas that you bought for your motorcycles or whatever you were doing. And that's, you would turn that in to get um, a credit, right? To get credit. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. That's amazing how things have changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things I, right now, guys, and anybody that's that's listening, it's like we've got a lot of stuff going on on the Rubicon Trail, some real serious political issues. And I'm not the expert on that subject, but I'd love to hear, you know, Ken, Roger, Pierce, Bob, all, you know, your input on what that means. And to give you guys a, a short brief, it's like they close the trail. Mm -hmm. That's it. So what, what it means from an industry business side. Um, yeah. So round robin on this one, guys. Yeah, I'll start on this. I think that, Chris, to, I'm going to just challenge you on that. It, this is not as serious as what has been told on the Internet. And I think that some of us will disagree on this where we are right now. But there's been a lot of hype about this online, and it does not deserve the amount of attention that this is getting right now. And frankly, it really makes me furious because this is the, the county closed the trail. The Department of Transportation did under an emergency order with the severe weather that they received up here. And as we all know, we took a stand as user groups many years ago to put our best feet forward when it came to environmental sensitivity to that trail where we would not uh, not trespass on it, but go on the trail when there was either uh, ex extreme melt, et cetera, some other areas. The county was within their full right to close the trail during an emergency order. They did it with a resolution. They did it with a vote of the Board of Supervisors. I think there's concern out there to say, well, 
what is the the benchmarks to close this trail in the future? But you know, we've seen, as you all explained, you you said the trail was in terrible condition in the nineties. Um, you know, there was a lot of misinformation. Ken, you alluded to this when Mark bought the land up there and people showed up in pitchforks again. And But they didn't, you said to me, you know, you said they didn't have the information that was there. And I think that there's a lot of bits and pieces of information that have been shared online that are just not true. And the county was well within its rights to shut the trail in the best interest of the public and the environment that was up there. We are we are supporters of the trail closure that happened. And what happened was there was a lot of, I believe, uh, misinformation towards the county, misdirected anger and aggression towards the county that was was really not founded. And, you know, now the county's come back and said, well, we realize that we 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 had the ability to shut the the areas going to the Rubicon. The, the, the resolution said that they didn't have the authority to shut the trail down, but that the areas like Wentworth Springs and the access points to it. But now the county is coming back and saying, you know, now we want to potentially extend that and give us more authority, you know, because we're realizing we didn't have the authority we had. And, you know, the county is not our enemy here. The county has fought from 1887, 1897, to keep this trail open. Bob Sweeney's great-great-grandparents and gra- dad and Gene Chappie and the Mark Smiths and the, the, the Rubicon Trail Foundation all fought to keep the trail open. The county is in our corner, you know. Um, and But, you know, they also have to take, they have to do their due diligence at times to ensure, as we saw earlier this year, there was a snowbank removed on the Tahoe side. And people, because they're in, against their own goodwill, went up there and got stuck and stranded vehicles in the trail. Sometimes you have to take measures to ensure public safety, but also we should take as users, all of us should ensure that, you know, this this closure, by the way, Chris, did not affect any group that was scheduled to go on the Rubicon Trail. It didn't affect any of the landowners going into their property. Nobody was scheduled to go up there and have a weekend of fun with their buddies in this huge, massive snowstorm that that created flooding throughout the county. So it was it was at a perfect time to announce that. But now it's really brought into a microscope of what is the county's jurisdiction over that and making closures. And now there's going to be meetings on that coming up next week. And there's going to be a lot of groups there kind of, um, you know, giving their two cents. And, uh, you know, there has to be accountability and understanding on when the closures happen and why and what's the extent of those closures and the time frames. And those are a little unclear. So it makes people feel unsafe and uncertain. Are they going to close the trail? And the answer is no. The trail is not under threat for permanent closure. That needs to be very publicly stated here. Um, it is what happens when there is extreme weather conditions, what happens when there's extreme melt-off, and what is our responsibility as user groups not to use it, just like our responsibility was to in, ensure that those groups at Spider Lake were creating a ruckus back in the 90s where it was unsafe for people. You know, Those need now to have a discussion about that. And so that's our two cents on that from a, from a standpoint of owning property and having commercial business up there. We weren't against what the county did, um, and we think we did it well within their right to do so. Oh, all right. Pierce, I love your input on it. You know, we saw a lot of havoc, a lot of things. I, as a young man, got educated up there with everything that went on on the Rubicon. And I look at the county since the water board gave us that uh, um, write-up with the polluting of the water. They did the correct thing by closing it for that restriction to show the water board and everybody else that we are respecting what we've learned and what we're going forward with. Like Pierce said, there was nobody set up to go up there and use that 
trail at that time. So it was a very safe and correct time to do what the county did to protect their investment. Over 15 million in 12 years is a lot of money that we all put in. The state, RTF, Jeep Jamboree USA, and Jeepers Jamboree, and the users. So let's protect our investment, and let's not fall back like we were in the 1900s. So uh, so this is where I'll jump in. So uh, I don't, I, w- I really want to make sure I'm clear on this. I don't disagree on what the kid conditions were and the situation was that this transpired. The problem is, is that, so in 2012, the Rubicon Trail was the El Dorado County asserted their RS-2477 rights. And Bob's dad uh, was the leader of that, Jack, um, to, to apply for an easement. So when a road the, the U.S. Forest Service was created in 1905, and there's an uh, an act called RS-2477. And RS-2477 basically says that when a road was designated a public or a county road prior to the creation of the Forest Service, that the county has the ability to uh, to make it a public right away. Uh, and I'm I'm very I'm putting this down in very basic terms. It's a lot more complicated, but. The end of the story and end of it is, is that um, the the Rubicon Trail became a public. So in in order to assert their rights, the county had two choices. They could go to court and sue uh, the U.S. Forest Service, which would have been El Dorado National Forest, which was something that I don't think anybody had the appetite to do. Um, uh, There are counties in in Arizona and um, Utah that have done that. Some have won, some have not won. So it's a very risky endeavor. By far. Uh, So what Jack, uh, Bob's father, decided was is that he would apply for an easement with the Forest Service. And that easement was done through an agreement. And there were eight appellants in that room. Um, I can think I can remember them all. There was El Dorado County, obviously, was one of them. And then there was uh, Corva. There was um, the Rubicon Trail Foundation. There was the Center for Biodiversity, which um, would probably I could characterize as not being friendly to OHV use. <laughs> yeah, I'm being kind. Um, th- there were three individuals in that room, uh, Karen Schonbach, Monty Hendricks and Rich Platt, who were uh, uh, working with the Center for Biodiversity. And there was me. I, I was not at there as a member of RTF. I had written my own um uh, appellate argument, and I was accepted as an appellant. And by appellate means you have the right to sue um, because your comments were accepted by the by the Forest Service. So not you, you, it's a complicated process, but anyway, that's how I ended up in the room. And and over the course of the two days that we negotiated, uh, water quality was clearly the number one uh, thing that was discussed. And there were out of that, there were three conditions that were determined that the that El Dorado County had the absolute right to close the trail. And uh, it's been closed uh, six times since 2012 uh, for those conditions, uh, five of which were at winter camp, which any, anybody who uh, is aware that was always water there. And now there's not because the county applied for a grant with the, with the OHMVR commission and dropped uh, enough rock to raise the road three or four feet. And it was a game changer. They did that in 2017. But those three conditions at that time were saturated soils that exist within the travel way 
uh, of the seven segments. And they were seven places. And I'm not going to go through them because it's not important. But there were seven locations that the county was responsible for testing. Uh, and water was flowing within the traveled area and amount capable of rinsing contaminants. And that depth was determined to be eight inches. And the water is flowing in an amount capable of transmitting set segment generated by a mechanical tire action. Those were the three conditions. And all three of those conditions had to be met in order for the county to close the trail uh, from that 2012 easement. Now, the next part of it was resolution 0152013. And that was the resolution that Ed Knapp, who was county counsel at the time in El Dorado County, uh, stated uh, that the he stated that the Rubicon Trail proper from Whitworth Springs Campground to County Line is not a county-maintained road. So the proposal here would be to close Wentworth Springs and Ice House Road, which are county-maintained roads right-of-ways where the Rubicon Trail starts because we can't close the Rubicon Trail. So we would be closing the county highway, i.e. the county-maintained road, so that we can close near the Rubicon Trail to limit access to the trail. December 30th, the closure that was initially uh, put out was done by the on the park's website, just said the Rubicon Trail is closed on December 30th. That is very concerning to our organization for Bob's access to the trail, Pierce's access to the trail, and the public's access to the trail. Uh, and, and that's a magic wand. Somebody said, we need to close it. It's not written there. So I think I agree with Pierce 100% that the county has the right in those circumstances to close the trail, but it's not in writing and words matter. And that's what's important here. So the county realizing, realizing that they couldn't close it the way that they did on December 30th, retroactively passed a resolution to properly do it because they knew what they had done on December 30th was not legal in any way, shape or form. So that is what our argument was at the beginning of this whole process was if you're going to close it, you have to do it correctly and the resolution has to the the trail has to be closed before the entrance of the trail or we lose our rs247 rights 2477 rights which i cannot stress enough how important those rights are and if we ever lost those rights other than the property owners the general public could be in jeopardy and things change like think the el dorado county does a great job uh, maintaining the road and bringing helicopters and making sure the trail is clean. They now, RTF used to pump, built all those bathrooms that are on the trail, by the way. Um, Clark Schiller and Aaron Bartolotto built all those bathrooms. RTF pumped them for seven years through money that we obtained from the OHV, through Roger, to buy a truck to do it. And then we voluntarily did it. And then the county reimbursed us for um, our time, which just went into our general fund. Nobody got paid. Um, So those kinds of things are very important to the trail. And all we're saying is words matter. On on the February 13th, we're going to be meeting with the DOT and the the Rubicon Trail Foundation has some criteria that we would like to add so that the county has the ability when something like this happens to to uh, close the trail or close access to the trail legally. I want to make sure my words are carefully stated as well. But we have to, one, make sure that we don't lose Ed Knapp's definition of what the Rubicon Trail proper means from 2013, that's critical. Um, and then we have the the actual mechanism that the county would use to close the trail is, is spelled out exactly where their rights are and what they have to close the trail. Because if we don't, 20 years from now, 15 years from now, who knows how far in the future things change. We know political environments change. 
appetite for heck statues are torn down that were part of our history that are now torn down. Things change. And Bob and Pierce could have an event in July or August and somebody, they're not there now, they're there now 20, 10 years from now, decides that they don't like something and they decide to close the trail prior to one of their events. And I think that would be a travesty. And that's why I believe that all of this has to be done in writing. The conditions are there so that it is done correctly and properly. And it's not just one person waving a magic wand based off of their, they don't like something because one person's travel in the snow is entertainment and fun. And another person's is misery. It just depends on your perspective. And yeah, yeah go ahead. Ken. Ken. I, I want to generate a question to you on a couple of things. I mean, would you yeah. agree? Cause there's a lot of misinformation right now online about this. And there's a lot of pitchfork grabbing right now because people think the Rubicon's under a closure, right? It's fair to say right now, you don't feel that the Rubicon is right now under a big threat to closure, right? There's not a government no, organization no, right no. now that's going to shut the trail down. So I think that's really no. important to state because I talked to a lot of people who've called us and said, the Rubicon's getting closed. It's like, that's not what's happening, you know? Um, and I don't disagree with you that any agency should be held accountable for how a closure is done. And I think what you and I and some other user groups are doing on Monday we meet with the county and the Department of Transportation is trying to identify and make have more clarity on the authorization and the jurisdiction of where the trail gets closed, how it gets closed, and the metrics in which it's closed and the metrics in which it reopens. And I think that, that nobody's against that whatsoever. I do think from a public standpoint, you know, the communication is really critical for people listening to this or how this is being broadcast that the Rubicon's not under a threat of closure. The county's not trying to close the trail. The county was not like the Forest Service was years ago when, you know, Mark chased him down to helicopter and threatened to kick the shit out of, you know, people who were trying to shut the trail down. It was a very, it's a very different time. And I think all of the interested parties are there. And I completely understand, by the way, and respect your point of view, which is political landscapes change. And we want to make sure that in writing that we understand how this happened. And my belief under the state of emergency that was there, I think, you know, understanding how it happened, I didn't disagree with it. I know we had a lot of people, we had, you and I had disagreements over that as well. But mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, there's no absolute no doubt on my end. We go to the meeting on Monday with them. It's, you know, we want to understand what, how this is going to change in the future, what that looks like. And, and what are the metrics to shut it down? Are those going to be met? And what are the metrics to open this back up again? Right. Yeah. Uh, and I absolutely agree with you that, that there should be absolute accountability for that uh, moving forward. So and I, 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 real quick, Roger, um, I, I will be calling you uh, probably tomorrow because uh, I, I do have some items here and I've run it by several of the people that are going to be in that meeting. I think everything that we're talking about is extremely fair and it's just, not appropriate for this context because we're having a you know a discussion here, but I, I do want to talk to you and at least explain like what what kind of proposal that we're talking about that is you know like you said verifiable criteria so that somewhere down the road and and one hundred percent the Rubicon Trail is not under threat of closure right now. But and you're right, there is a lot of people love to type. Let's 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 <laughs> that's be right. Right. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that the, that, that Pierce and, and Ken have brought up, uh, uh, you know, that is is you know the, the lack of information or the lack of communication. I think sometimes creates, uh, you know, when there's when there's an information void or a communication void, people can you know uh, uh, ascribe a nefarious uh, uh, you know uh, rationale or you know nefarious motives uh, to anything that's out there. 
you know, we used to have, and again, uh, you all know this better than I do, but there, you know, the, there was a Rubicon organizing committee that used to meet regularly with stakeholders mm -hmm. and agencies that would sort of hash a lot of these things out, uh, you know, so that, that so that you could have, a, a, you know, a, an open line of communications. Uh, the, the, that committee hasn't met in a, in a long time. It's one of the reasons that uh, um, uh, that Amy Granite from Corva, uh, uh, you know, uh, and myself have uh, taken it upon ourselves to try to see if we can bring people together in a sort of Rubicon coordinating council uh, uh, to try and you know open those lines of communication back up uh, it, amongst the stakeholders, and then eventually in the agency, so that we can all sort of have uh, you know a regular type of communication, uh, so that we don't have misunderstandings, so that we're all kind of clear on the, on the same place, and we all you know uh, are, are you know moving forward with our with our shared goal of open access and perpetuity for the Rubicon Trail. I can. Hey, Roger, you bring up. Go ahead. Yeah, you, go sorry, ahead. you no, bring no, a really no, good go. point. And, and Ken and I have talked about this actually. That during this closure, I don't think there was a enough information from the county. Like you said, went to a website, it's closed. Right? There needs to be some really comprehensive networking as well with the organizations like Jeepers Jamboree, like Marlin Crawlers, like all these organizations who touch with these people to say, "Look, it's being closed for these reasons." You know, no worries. It's here's it's two weeks. It's whatever. We're going to revisit this in two weeks. Not to worry. This is not a permanent closure. This is what we're doing. And to get the user groups behind that to help tell the story, because when we get online and we say, like, guys, look, the Rubicon's going to be closed. First of all, we connect with a lot more people on social media than the county does at the end of the day. You know, we talk to a lot more people. So the ability to get that information out to make sure those people don't plan a trip that are coming across state lines and, and spending the money with that. And then ensuring people that it's temporary closed, it's for your own good reasons, good for good purpose. We're protecting the environment. We're making sure people aren't there and getting, you know, search and rescue called on them. It then it calms everybody down. I think that we can, you and I've talked about that. That's a, I think important piece as we move forward with the communication piece going forward with that. I, so we, I, I, one of the things I want to jump in here on is that you all brought up some really good points. One is the metrics on why it's closed and why it when it would be opened again. And I mm -hmm. think that's one of the things that I understand. I totally get it because we're on the, on the same page. It's like, we want to protect the trail and we're going to do, we're going to constantly changing political environment, you know, environmentally. So we're going to do what it takes to maintain that trail. I think one of the things that at least the comments that I heard and, you know, I, I share some of these thoughts or it's like, okay, well, we've seen a lot of temporary closures and different places that are just temporary for a month. And then it's like, well, now we're not going to open it until July because there's still that, a little bit of snow on the ground. So that, that's a that that's the, that's the slippery slope. That's the slippery slope, Chris. Yeah. And, 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 and to Roger's point, let me just, to Roger's point about like the, the, the steering committee, it's like when things are good and things have gotten so much better in the last 20 years that um, we get complacent. And somebody just needs to throw an M80 in the fire to get everybody's attention. And maybe this was the one. It's like, bring everybody back into the circle. It's like, okay, where are we going? I'd like to bring up the communication again that Pierce mentioned. Um, we have, you know, we have 50,000. Now, I don't know if they're all of the same eyeballs, but because we have various places, but you total it all together. We have about 50,000 people that follow us regarding the information on the Rubicon Trail. If the county said prior to this December 30th and said, hey, we got a bunch of storms coming in. W right now, we can't legally close it. We're going to look and see what, what whatever that is. Can you please tell people not to come? We would have 100% vigorously <laughs> told people, please don't go to the Rubicon Trail right now. But they didn't do that. And I wish that they had because we would have helped them try to keep people from going there for sure. 
without having to close the Rubicon Trail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pierce, I want to everybody. I want to just take a break here. How are you doing for time, Pierce? I know you got another. I've got about. I've got about five minutes. You so. got five minutes. All right. Let's just let's uh, get close to wrapping this up. We Pierce has got five minutes. What, anybody else want to throw something out there, Bob? If you can, if we can get your audio working, that would be great. Or, um, or Roger, Rick. Well, one thing I want to say is that next Monday, <clears throat> excuse me, will be pretty important. With especially with the two meetings. Unfortunately, this is a podcast that's not live, so we're still going to have to get back together, revisit that meeting, and in the future, give our viewers a little bit of what happened. Yeah. If everybody's agreed, want to be yeah. back? Yeah, no, that would, that would be good. And again, like I said, it's, <laughs> it's a matter uh, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stakeholders involved. There's a lot of people, and, and, and I want to be very, very clear about this. Everybody you know, that, that, uh, that's involved cares about the trail. Everybody wants to, wants it to, to, to stay open. Um, you know, and it's all just a question of, of let's, uh, let's figure out a way to, to, to talk to each other better, uh, to have better communications, have better communications with the agencies, uh, you know, to have open lines of dialogue with the forest services and the, and the, uh, the you know, and, and the, uh, and, you know, not just El Dorado, but Placer County as well. Uh, uh you know, it, we, we all want to be, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, talking to each other so that we don't have misunderstandings in the future. Yeah, and let me just say what the what the county is doing right. Department of Transportation is bringing all the stakeholders together to say we want to hear your opinions. You know, this obviously created some strife. We want to learn how to do this differently. The county board of supervisors says we want a new resolution. We want the input. They're getting input from a lot of groups. I know Ken's there. We're there. Jeepers is there. We're all there to give our input on this. Um, and and I think that's going to be vitally important to the success of this moving forward, so that we all feel comfortable with what happens in the future. So let me just throw it out here. So for the people listening, um, if they haven't been involved in the Rubicon Trail in any particular type of way, maybe they always want to go on it. Maybe they're across the country. What can they do as the users to support the cause? Um, I want to throw that again. <laughs> uh, well, uh, of course, we always uh, love to take uh, donations, but that, I'm not asking for that. I think Follow um, our website, follow the Rubicon Trail for information. We try. It's we're not perfect. We're, we're human beings. We make mistakes. We try our best to get the uh, the, the information out there. Um, but of course, if we don't get it from the county, it's very difficult to to say exactly what's going on, which brings us back to Pierce's point. So, so um, uh Go if you want to go on a trip, go to on Jeepers Jamboree USA, go to jeepersjamboree.com and go on one of their trips and really experience this in a really superior way. I live 61 miles from airing down my tires at the Rubicon Trail. I know you don't live far away, Chris, and we go on uh, Bob's trip. Um, I've never been on Pierce's trip, but um, I, I obviously, I obviously, yes, you have. I obviously support it. I, I think it's a great way for somebody to get started or if you're experienced and live close by and want to have a great time with the stripper pole, you go and enjoy one of those trips. So can, yes. can somebody um, become a <laughs> member of uh, RTF? Uh, there's no membership. You just follow us on social media. We put you know regular posts out there. We have public fundraising events like Cantina. Cantina still happens. That's famous tacos. We do tacos and we have a raffle and we've had a couple bands. And then we also have black tie and boots, which is our fancy 
schmancy dinner dancing evening that we're going to be having on March 11th. I think there's actually 10 or 15 tickets left. There's almost 300 people going to this, mm. this one. So um, you can obviously go to those, but just, just follow all of the social media and website stuff to get that information. Uh, we just need to do a better job of getting it from the source for sure. So Roger, Chris, the, from a state standpoint, I'm sorry, Pierce, go for it. No, I, I was just going to say from a user standpoint, people could follow practice the principles of tread lightly, pack it in, pack it out. If they want to, you know, if they're not joining something, you know, follow, stay on the center line of the trail. Don't go off designated routes. These are all important things that really help keep the trail open. Add that peer pressure to somebody who's out there doing it wrong. Let them know they're doing it wrong. Educate people. Mm -hmm. Those things are really vitally important. If people can stay on the designated trails, Follow the practice, practice the principles of tread lightly. Those are important pieces anybody can take out there and do it right. Yeah, yeah. I'd, echo, I'd echo what uh, what Pierce is saying. Um, uh, you know, and again, uh, it, as you mentioned, treadlightly.org is a is a great uh, resource for that. If you want to sort of look, go and, and look at best practices, um, you know, and, and I do encourage I encourage you know, there's a lot of of of, uh, of uh, you know four wheel drive clubs that are really listening to this, uh, members of, of of different groups and organizations. Uh, pitch in when you can. You know, uh, uh, friends of the Rubicon and and uh, you know RTF uh, usually have activities. You know, last uh, uh, this past uh, summer we went. And and, and help them, uh, uh, you know, do some trail maintenance, uh, you know, out on the trail, uh, pitching where you can. It's it's uh, it's, it's good to, to to you know to it's a good way to sort of get your uh, get a real good feel for the trail, uh, you know, up close and personal. All right. So one of the things, one thing I want uh, just a takeaway for everybody listening, because Pierce is absolutely right, and Ken's right, Bob's been right. There's a lot of pitchforks getting thrown around, um, and you know, I you know, same. It, I was at the same pitchfork holding crowd when I first saw it. I'm like, what are they doing? But, you know, what you've done, Ken, especially with your detailed explanation of, you know, protocol uh, and what we're doing to keep that trail open in the long term, um, really kind of clarified, you know, the reasons why it needed to happen. Maybe it wasn't done exactly the way that it's supposed to be done, but yeah. setting forward um, what is going to be the the best practice in the future, I think is huge. And I, I'd like, as a takeaway, I'd like everybody listening to just understand that you got a lot of people working on the Rubicon trail, pulling for it from, from the, the business side between Pierce and Bob, the grassroots side between Ken, uh, the OHV commission and tens of thousands of users, you know, especially in our local area here, that it's like, we're going to do what we have to do to make it happen. And sometimes you got to cut the skin to get in and, and do surgery. Yeah. And, you know, and we just got to, we, we got to, yeah, you, know, you know, we always have to be vigilant. And again, the more we talk to each other, the the more prepared we are for challenges in the future. So let's just keep those communication lines open. We, we our board right. meetings, but our board meetings, by the way, they're, they're on the website, they're public, they're a zoom meeting. You can, <clears throat> anybody can phone in or zoom in or whatever they want to do and listen to hear what we talk about. Some of it's pretty boring stuff. Like, did anybody go to the post office today? <laughs> <laughs> Roger, is that meeting going to be broadcast on Monday, on the thirteenth? Yeah, there's a there's a Zoom link that uh, uh, the Jim Bramham has set up. Uh, the folks from Cal Four Wheel have set up uh, um, uh, that uh, um, if folks uh, need to get uh, to it, uh, uh, you know, find me at uh, at Roger Salazar or go on on uh, the Cal Four Wheel website. They've got uh, or Cal Four Wheel Force, uh, Facebook page. They've got a link to it on there as well. Excellent. Uh, All right, I'll, guys. I'll post one as well. I'm gonna we're gonna wrap this up. Um, <laughs> I know a couple of you got to run. But man, I really appreciate everybody's time today. I mean, just a wealth of information that we've got here in this group and uh, fantastic. Um, yep. We want to thank, yeah. thank all of you guys for taking part of this. And uh, like I said, we want to do it again. We want to have a follow up on this. I think it's going to be extremely important. Sure.
I'm planning on being on the meeting and uh, yeah, follow up would be great to let's share with, you know, share with the public and spread the word. It's like, you know, you got people working on it. It's not just going to get a big gate across it. And uh, we will, with all due diligence, we'll have a Rubicon trail in another 70 years, Bob, for the 140th Jamboree. (laughs) (laughs) I, I think I'll miss that one. (laughs) <laughs> I, I, yeah, we, we might, unless we're setting some I'm looking record, forward so. to it. <laughs> All, right. All right, guys. All right, guys. Hey, thanks thanks for again. You guys be safe, and we'll see some of you on Monday. All right. All right. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us again. Uh, Gone Cheap and Podcast, the Rubicon Roundup with uh, Ken Howard from Rubicon Trail Foundation, Bob Swinney from Jeepers Jamboree, Roger Salazar at the California Off-Highway Motor Vehicle Recreation Division, and Pierce Simloff from uh, Jeep Jamboree USA. All right. Cheers, guys. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks.